This is the Darren Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz. I've been interviewing musicians, comedians, and all sorts of entertainers for almost 20 years. Joan Rivers, Flavor Flav, Paris Hilton, members of Guns N' Roses and the Eagles, and countless others. This show is about artists and why they do what they do. On this edition of the Paltrowcast, I spoke with three people who have recently released new music, Hunt Sales, John Davis, and Sid Wilson. First up is my chat with Hunt Sales. The son of legendary comedian Soupy Sales and the brother of bassist Tony Sales, drummer Hunt Sales has played with David Bowie, Todd Rundgren, and Iggy Pop at various points. His first proper solo album was released as the Hunt Sales Memorial, and it came out last month through the Big Legal Mess record label. Hunt is based in Austin, Texas these days, and he was a pleasure to talk with. How long had your album been in the works for? I've had one version or other of this band for quite a while, for quite a few years. Me and the guitar player, Charco Gene, uh, we hooked up years ago, and we started working on this project. And we must have like, I don't know, two or three records in the can worth of music and we would go out and occasionally do gigs but we do more rehearsal than anything you know what i mean um i treated where i live which is austin texas as a stop on a tour opposed to making a career and playing every week with my band you know what i mean um what happened is an old friend of mine will sexton invited me to memphis and I went to Memphis to do some gigs. I did one of my own gigs with some pickup guys, really great players, you know, that had played with Bobby Blue Bland and Stevie Wonder, you know, that caliber. And then I did some gigs with him, and I was getting ready to leave Memphis. And he said, what are you doing next week? I said, the same old stuff, you know, this and that and whatever. He said, why don't you stay? So I stayed in Memphis the next week, and that's when I met Bruce, who's one of the owners of Fat Possum Records, and then um, the owner of Big Legal Mess, which is an offshoot. And I met Bruce, and um, Bruce offered me a deal to put out a single. And I said, what do you want me to do? I could get some musicians here or Austin. He said, why don't you bring your guys from Austin? Because he, I guess, had heard some stuff I'd done, and uh, he wanted that flavor. So... I went back to Austin and I got Charco, the guitar player, and uh, this bass player, and we proceeded to work up some material. Now, with all the material I have, and I've got quite a bit, I sat down and wrote all new material. And we went back to Memphis to record, and then Bruce informed me, he said, let's forget about doing the single. And I said, yeah. He said, let's do an album. So it went from a single deal to an album. Like I said, with all the material I have um, recorded with Charco, I wrote all new stuff for this record. I figured um, I'm always writing material. I like the latest thing that I've written or whatever. Not that the older stuff isn't good, but I just, you know, I like to write, you know? Was the song One Day one of the first songs you wrote for the album? Yeah, I wrote that 
and two others in about a half hour period, I came up with the seed of that song in, in Memphis. I was sitting around and I was thinking about, I guess I was thinking about my dad, my mom and, and people that I missed. You know what I mean? And, I, and that's what that song is about. It's about loss. It's about all of us. Like, you know, one day I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. You know what I mean? And then I came back to Austin and sat down and really worked, put some work on it, you know, into the song. So they say a lot of times with writing, sometimes it's 10% inspiration and 90% perspiration. You know what I mean? Sometimes I've talked to other writers and artists just to see how they feel about stuff. It'll all come to you. Like uh, everything will come to you. And, and it's weird how that happens writing. And uh, other times, parts of it will come, and then it's like, I better, I'm going to sit down now and really work on this. But um, the whole idea of that song, I just, it was like reminiscing and, and thinking about, you know, things I think everyone thinks about. Like, maybe, uh, maybe I need to be a little bit nicer. Maybe uh, I need to be less selfish. And, uh, and then there's the line about missing my mom and missing my dad, which I do. I don't walk around all the time going, I miss you, but I'm around other people that, that have their mom and their dad. And, and I just look at them and I go, God, aren't you lucky? You know what I mean? That's a pretty universal thing. Well, speaking of, you know, you know family, are, are your children in entertainment at all? I have an older daughter named Callie, C-A-L-I, and she is an artist, uh, drawing, painting, different kinds of art, uh, other, other, other mediums. She's an artist, and she lives in Brooklyn. I have an 11-year-old named Sugar, and she's an artist, and she's really good. So I guess, what do they say? The fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. I mean, Sugar's young. I don't know what, but she sure does sit there and, uh, and put the time in and does, does a lot of drawings and stuff, and she's really good. And then Callie, is, Callie did some of the artwork for the record. She did the uh, poster that's inside of the record that comes out of the record. I put a poster in the record, kind of like the old days, you know, where there'd be posters and stuff. Being that you have a third generation of artists, could we ever see a museum of all your family art? That would be nice. Um, Callie, some of her stuff is at one of the museums in New York, and um, they did an exhibition on T-shirt art. And some things that she's done for this um, collective, it's called the Deep End Club. And some of her T-shirt designs from, I guess, from there were in the museum on this uh, exhibition they had about T-shirts part. So she's, uh, Callie is a fantastic artist. She um, went to Pasadena Art and Design. It's a college in Pasadena, California. Um, people like Chip Foose, the car designer, a lot of car designers go there and visual, you know, artists go there. It's a great school and she uh, graduated with honors, but she was already an artist before she went there. That was kind of like boot camp, you know what I mean? And myself, I quit school at about 15 years old. So what would it be? If it's eighth, ninth grade, I quit going to school and um, I studied. I always had a teacher ever since I started drums. I started playing drums when I was six, seven years old. I finally hooked up with this master teacher. And basically, because I wasn't going to school, you know, um, 
I studied with this teacher. His name was Freddie Gruber. And uh, Freddie had played with Charlie Parker and a lot of great people. Basically, the second part of his life, he taught. He taught people that already played. He taught technique. Him and some people had worked out the technique of Buddy Rich, you know, the, the style he played. And, um, and I studied with Freddie. I would practice six days a week, about 10 hours a day. And then I would go jam in the ghettos of L.A. and play with organ trio like Jimmy Smith, that kind of music. And uh, guys, 10, 20, 30, 40 years older than me. But um, I started in music in 1965 at the age of 11 and was working in an adult world back then. So um, I've had a, a strange, interesting life, kind of reminiscent, I guess, of the child actors, you know, in the 40s, like Mickey Rooney and these people in the 30s, where they were making, you know, our gang comedy where these kids are 10 and 9 and 8 and they're working in an adult world. I don't know a lot of people 11 years older, you know, have a union card and a social security number. Right. Well, an interesting thing I, I noticed in your headshot that Carrie Baker sent me that you have a Star of David tattoo on your on your left arm. When did you first get that? I had one on my ankle about 30 years ago, and then I got it put on there, my heritage. And I know it's like with tattoos, you're not buried in a Jewish, you know, in a cemetery, but... Um, that's part of my heritage. My father's mother was Jewish and my mother's father was Jewish. So I was not bar mitzvahed, but um, I consider myself a Jew. And um, I'm, I'm proud that I am. That is a big part of me. It just is. It's funny. You get outside of New York in certain areas and um, you know how Jews are treated. You know what I mean? People will make jokes and just be a little bit too much into it. I could never imagine what it's like to be African-American and what they go through in society or Hispanic. But I do know being a Jew that uh, in certain circles, I am not liked. Okay. Understood. Sure. And then some people will say, get yourself a Jew lawyer. Like, well, why don't you go fuck yourself? I mean... Yeah, if he's if he's a Jew, he's probably a fucking great lawyer. But still, that that stereotype, that stereotypical thing um, about Jews, and um, I don't know. I'm an equal opportunity lover and hater, and I don't care what you are. You're either a good person or not. I don't care what religion you are. I don't care what color you are. There's there's dumbasses that come in every color and every religion, and then there's great people that come in every religion and color, as you know. So that is part of my heritage, and I'm proud of it. Besides this album, uh, you mentioned that you had other albums in the can or a lot of uh, other material written. Are there any other projects or gigs that you want to promote at the moment? No, just this one. Um, the record will be out January, and um, I've been in rehearsal with my band, and um, hopefully we'll be out sooner or later doing a bunch of shows. So I'm just trying to get ready to go out to promote this record and play. I play for myself, number one, and then I play for people. You know what I mean? It's kind of a selfish thing, but um, I'm my I'm my own worst critic. But um, I'm really um, 
I got into music for all the wrong reasons or right reasons. I was so young at six, seven playing. I didn't get into it for money. I didn't get in, in it to, for, for, for women. All that stuff came later. <laughs> you know what I mean? I had to figure out how to make a living doing this because I just, you know, uh, was turned on to music at a very young age. And this is pre Beatles. There was a drummer at a session I went to named Earl Palmer. And Earl Palmer is a famous drummer. He's not around anymore, but played on a lot of famous records. Uh, I guess Fats Domino, Little Richard, you know, that kind of stuff, New Orleans guy. And he was at a session that my dad did these records that were half comedy singing records. And it was a session of my father's. And I knew I didn't want to go into the um, comedy aspect, you know, show business. I went into the music thing. So I guess I'm second generation, you know what I mean? I was born into it and then had to pay my own dues and whatever I got, I worked for. And I, you know, I continue to work for it. And to have an opportunity to have this record out right now is really great. And uh, Bruce at uh, Big Legal Mess has given me this opportunity to, I guess, have a, um, a second career or third career, whatever you want to call it. You know what I mean? I've never stopped doing session work and producing and writing and doing all this. But I got to a point where whether anyone heard it or not, I didn't care. But now with this record coming out and Bruce, Bruce's help and his push and support, now I can bring my music to a lot of people. And um, I think what's lacking right now is some real sincerity and uh, stuff that you really feel. You know, I, I was I was around this guy, I'd say he maybe was 20, 21 years old. And I asked him if he ever heard of Sam Cooke. And he hadn't. And uh, I put on a Sam Cooke song and played it for him. Now, I know that's kind of some old school stuff. Oldie but goodie. Oh, my God. I almost started to cry listening to it. You know what I mean? It was so deep. And um, I turned someone on to Myron Cohen. You familiar with Myron Cohen? I know the name. I don't know the material, unfortunately. Like he spoke Yiddish and uh, was on the Borscht Belt circuit. A comedian from back in the day. Kind of like monologues, uh, like story. He told jokes, but the stories were great. And anyone that's out there, go on YouTube and check out Myron Cohen. He was awesome. You know what I mean? He did the Ed Sullivan show. And the, like everyone he played... He played the Borscht Belt and, um, and all that circuit and everything. But um, Myron Cohen, awesome. Just an awesome, it's a Jewish comedian. Um, like, Don, you know, Don Rickles and all these people. But we live in a weird time now where no one can make fun of anything and everything is so serious. And um, someone said, let's make America good again. I thought, I think America is great. You know what I mean? And I've been all over the world. And every time I'm out of this country, I can't wait to come back. I love this country. And I think this country is great. You know, it's, I think it's the greatest country in the world. And uh, this country is great. Absolutely. So uh, in closing, any last words for the kids? You know what? I could say this and that. But I remember being young, younger, and people would try to tell me this and that. And kind of everyone has to have their own experience. You know what I mean? You can tell somebody something and help try to guide them. And, uh, but they really have to have their, their, um, 
their own experience to really to really learn. You know what I mean? We all do, don't we? We have to have our own experience. I don't want to play God to anybody. You know, I ain't God. <laughs> you know what I mean? So um, thank God there is one, you know? So I'm just grateful and lucky that I have this opportunity now to keep playing music and hopefully I inspire some people. And that's really what my mission here is, is to inspire people and um, raise my 11-year-old and be there for her and for my older daughter and uh, and be there for my wife and uh, family. You know what I mean? And that's, that's about it. Next up are highlights from my phone chat with John Davis. John was the principal lead singer and songwriter of the band Superdrag. In the years since Superdrag disbanded, John has been especially prolific, releasing music as a solo artist with Lees of Memory and also as part of other bands. John's latest release is the single, We Are In The Wild and We Are Home, which he co-wrote with Not A Surf frontman Matthew Cause. Proceeds from the single go to benefit AmeriCares. I first asked John about this collaboration with Matthew on the single. You know, it's weird. As much time as we spent together a long time ago, including a lot of, you know, downtime, waiting around to sound check or something or just days off or whatever, like, we never really formally made any kind of an effort to actually sit down and write something, which is, is weird. So I guess from a certain point of view, it took about 22 years to happen. They were going to be coming to town last, kind of like end of spring, early summer of last year. And, uh, I think he kind of put the word out on the social media sites that he was hanging around, you know, looking to do some co-writing. I don't know. I mean, I, I was just instantly intrigued by the idea of trying to do that. So I can't remember exactly what I said, but I, I said something in a comment like, I'd love to do that, holler at me. So anyway, I went down to the show, and of course it was great. And, you know, I got to see all the guys, which was really fun because I hadn't, you know, I hadn't really seen them since about 2010. You know, my friend Mike Purcell, who we've made a lot of records with and done a lot of recording with, uh, is also like a big Not A Surf fan. He was also at the show, kind of knew that we were maybe possibly thinking about working together on something. So he made sure the studio was available, and which was huge. And, you know, at that point, kind of plans kind of changed from us maybe goofing around over here with the four track or something to, you know, basically making a, a production out of it. We were just chatting uh, after the show, and something he said really, uh, I don't know, kind of set off a chain reaction in my mind and it really kind of got me writing the song in my mind. By the next day, I guess, I had a, I, ha- I kind of had a pretty cool direction that I was thinking about going with it. And uh, I want to say maybe it was not the, the next day after the show, but maybe the day after. I'm not 100% positive. I guess I had kind of had the key of the song in mind and kind of had the groove in mind and the verse, those opening verses to the song were kind of already there. Uh, but then we sat there and just really just went back and forth and kind of 50-50 just finished the thing. And we would take breaks every once in a while to just kind of talk about stuff. At one point, we were listening to, like, some NASA recordings of the, the planets. Because, <laughs> you know, the, the planets actually have voices, and they, all of them, and they, they sing. You know, nobody can ever hear them in the vacuum of space, of course, except for NASA. <laughs> There's a million of them on YouTube. You know, it'll just be like a 59-minute recording of Neptune spinning, you know. <laughs> and we didn't actually end up flying any of those in on the track, but that probably would have been a good idea. 
it was obviously tons of fun. I mean, we had a great time and it was just very easy. Of course, a lot of times with co-writes, you know, you're going in there with somebody you've never met before and kind of hoping you can find some like common ground to jump off into and come up with something good. And it, I mean, it does happen that way a lot of times, but, uh, in this case, you know, it was just super easy. You know, a lot of people uh, outwardly seem like really nice people, but when you get to know them a little bit, you find out really they're maybe not so nice. <laughs> but in Matthew's case, he really is as nice as he seems. It's just a really genuine, cool dude, and obviously an awesome musician, and just somebody that I admire a lot, and a lot of people do. And it's kind of meant to be, I guess. And then you know, the studio time didn't cost us a thing. They they let us you know, they let us come in and record the song for nothing. So when we finally got around to doing something about it, it didn't, it didn't really seem right to try to make money from it. You know, like we, we thought there was a better way of doing it. And so we kind of researched and looked around at different charities and AmeriCares just seemed like a really good one to support. It was funny because I, I kind of came to that conclusion. And then he also kind of came to the same conclusion through a totally different means. And, uh, it was like on a, on a short list of ones that he came up with. So anyway, that's a really long answer to that one question. But You've been really prolific the past few years between, you know, the single, the Lees, you're still playing with Epic Ditch and all that. But what's very interesting to me is you don't have commercial expectations for this music. Can you take me through that mindset? <laughs> well, you know, the thing about expectations is, you're kind of you're kind of setting yourself up for disappointment many times when you have too many expectations about commercial uh, successes and things like that. I, we've dealt with between Superdrive, you know, myself solo, the Lees. I mean, we've dealt with labels of every size and shape, and had a whole you know wide range of different kinds of experiences at uh, different places and successes and you know, more modest successes and all that kind of thing. The level that we operate at is very comfortable for us because, number one, we can't tour. It's just not something we're able to do uh, with the way life is set up in all other respects. Just taking off for a month at a time or something is not even for a, a week or two at a time. We would kind of have to move heaven and earth to, like, make that possible. You know, it's just kind of the way it is so right off the bat i mean a lot of labels are not even willing to consider dealing with you if you're not going to play 200 shows a year which you know but that just kind of takes us out of the game because we can't do that we already did that <laughs> so you know the thing that i probably appreciate the most about this setup is just that like well number one like you said you don't you're not really under the gun to do anything at any certain time or please anybody other than yourself and what, what you want to do artistically at any given time, which is a pretty awesome way to work. And it, the thing is, um, it not only sustains itself now, you know, after a few go rounds of doing things fully DIY, I mean, it's actually, we've managed to do well enough to where we, we have like what we need to make another record right now i feel like a lot of a lot of major label bands would like to be in that position <laughs> what we do is on a small scale and that's fine of course you know we'd like to reach more people with the records because we feel like the records keep getting better 
Uh, but I guess everybody feels like that, that, that's been at it for this long. If you're not learning more about how to write and how to play and how to produce and arrange, and if all those things aren't, are, are stagnant and they're not developing, I mean, what, you know, what, what are we doing? <laughs> you know, if you're not, if you're not building on all the other stuff that you've done before, I don't know. It's kind of a bummer. I never really set out to run a label. That's not something that I really aspired to do. But at the end of the day, there's something to be said for keeping it real simple and knowing exactly what you spend and exactly what you make and not having to like decipher some accounting two years later that makes no sense or not having to struggle to get something back out of a licensing deal or anything like that. And well, and the other thing too is that because we only really exist on the records, I mean, at this, at the pace we're going, we, you know, we play once about every three years. We just keep making the records and we, you know, you talk about being prolific, like we can put things out at, at our own pace and we don't have to be on anybody else's schedule. You know, I always wanted to get in a, in a gear where I was putting out a record a year, but nobody will ever let you do it. They're like, Oh no, no, you can't do that. You got to, you got to run this one in the ground for at least two or three years. So the way we operate now, basically as fast as we can write and produce the stuff, we can put it out as fast as we want to. And uh, we've kind of paused here to reflect for a minute, but over about a three-year period, starting with uh, the first Lee's album, I had this all figured up in my mind at one point, but it was like basically 10 full-length sides of vinyl and and another uh, maybe six 45s that were non-album tracks i mean and that's uh that's the most that i've ever put out in any three-year period and then in terms of your musical evolution from what i can tell you know you started off with the beatles and eventually you know punk rock influences like the misfits came into play and then somehow my bloody valentine the shoegaze happened but also the power pop happened but then eventually you found your way to jazz and somehow country it's not very clear what you listen to i i guess that's what i'm i'm going towards yet the single that you did with matthew seems like it was able to blend a few eras from you know your musical evolution so what i'm curious about is with all those genres and and phases and all that how do you think of yourself as a musician? <laughs> well, man, I don't know. That's a, that's a really good question. You know, I guess um, the first thing that popped in my mind when you asked the question was uh, kind of like a seeker, I guess. Uh, and hopefully that doesn't sound corny or anything, but I want to hear it. I want to hear it all, you know? You talk about discovering different forms and like different idioms of music and stuff. Like, I want to hear all of it. And like when I get to a new place, I want to soak up all of it. When I got turned on to Coltrane, you know, I listened to Coltrane for six months every day or something, you know, like trying to just uh, soak up as much of the information as possible. And, um, you know, jazz is, is something that I guess finds its way in, in in certain ways that like I don't play a horn, you know, so it's not something I can really fully assimilate into what I'm trying to do, although if I had a, a tenor saxophone, I probably would try to play it, but that might not, might not work out. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I just, I think the, um, there's just such a vast limitless just galaxy of great music that, which is yet to be discovered, at least for me. I mean, 
I'm always waiting to, you know, have my wig blown off by something else, you know, and I think that carries over to the the writing side of things because we've never made the same record twice in a row. The flip side of that is also having a, having total trust in the creative impulse. And if, you know, whatever song shows up is the next one to be written and it just has to be you know, processed and and followed through with to see what it's going to be. And uh, so, you know, sometimes I get off and of trying to write country songs or trying to write, you know, rhythm and blues or, you know, uh, we had a couple of bossa novas on this <laughs> last album. You know, just the Indian sounds. and It's always trying something that's new to us. It's not necessarily reinventing the wheel or something nobody's ever done before but it's you know bringing the sitar and the tampera and the harmonium and all those indian sounds that's something we wanted to do for 20 years you know we just didn't have the tools from this you know from a really young age like i've just always been hung up on music and just eat up with it and it's consumed my consciousness for as long as i can remember and i can't drive without it or do anything without it i have to have it so do you know what the rest of 2019 looks like in terms of music uh do you have another lee's album in the works i have like at least three albums in my mind that i want to do one of my own and one with brandon and nick and another uh rectangle shades album but they're all you know just kind of things we're talking about really it all just hinges on the material you know, when it shows up and like presents itself and just kind of takes shape. Because I have been writing a bunch and I've got, I don't know, maybe three, four songs that fit in one bag, and maybe four or five that fit in the other. And so, I mean, my goal for 2019 generally is to, you know, write a hundred songs. Try to come up with as many songs as I can and try to keep the street going. <laughs> there's no, I mean, there's no, no real pressure except what we put on ourselves, but I feel like the that double album was a, a peak for us in terms of uh, just the creativity of the tunes and kind of the, the range it had. It really covered a lot of ground. And, uh, I'm really anxious to hear what Brandon's going to bring because I know he's been working on some stuff that he's kind of holding out on me. I haven't heard any of it. You know, man, the, the whole thing with the lead of memory, the, the, the most enjoyable thing about it really is the hang, you know, just being... With, with my my best friend, you know, of 30 years. Like, if we, I, I kind of feel like that's the whole justification for, like, starting a band. <laughs> you know, if we actually get around to recording, you know, it's a, it's a bonus, you know. It was all kind of his thing to start with, and I, I just jumped in. <laughs> so any last words for the kids? Oh, man, I don't know. Happy New Year, and I would say uh, safety first. Treat each other good. Last but not least are highlights from my chat with Sid Wilson, the DJ from Slipknot, who is also known as DJ Starscream. Sid released his first solo album, Sexcapades of the Hopeless Robotic, last year. Unfortunately, Sid had background music playing during our chat, but on the bright side, he did talk about his ability to travel through time in order to make Sexcapades of the Hopeless Robotic. Thank you very much for your time. How are you doing tonight? I'm good, man. Uh, you know... Hard and steady working. Hard and steady working. Are you are you at Moonbase right now? Yeah, 
Absolutely. So I'm curious. I'm curious, about, I'm curious, like when you realized, you know, the importance of having a studio and having a space like that for working. I mean, fairly early on, I always had other friends that uh, had drum machines and recording equipment, maybe like, you know, four tracks or eight track recorders. Or, and uh, I just couldn't afford to have, you know, recording equipment when I was younger. So I just practiced DJing as I could DJ. And then, um, you know, eventually I was able to afford the studio equipment. But I think it's always good to, you know, depending on whatever your um, career choice is or what you're trying to learn and what you're trying to do, you should try and learn as many aspects of it as possible because it can only, you know, help improve what you're doing, you know. Even if you're just an artist, you know, and you're just trying to be like the person doing vocals and whatnot, you can still you know, learn all the production side of everything so you're able to work faster and more efficiently and also communicate better with the people that are uh, helping you achieve your goal. Right, that that makes sense. So did you make your whole new album at Moonbase? Yeah, I did actually. Uh, the majority of it, there's a song here and there, you know, where like I was traveling on tour and have a day off or uh, set up the studio and the tour bus, you know, you capture things when you're on the move, but... The majority of it was done with the moon base. Did you contribute, you know, all the vocals and all the DJ work and the keyboard work? Um, I did uh, probably 75% of the compositions and then uh, 70 to 75%. There's other producers involved for sure. As far as vocals, there's only one track with features on it. It's, uh, it's called Sex Trap. It's got Chris Styles doing the hook. Uh, singing, and then I got Ill Bill on the second verse. Got it. So how long did you spend making the new album? Uh, it was over a period of seven years, uh, which actually is about seven minutes in my time. I had to time travel to, to um, complete the album. Traveled into the, you got to travel into the future to uh, capture the music that uh, no one else is able to capture, and then travel back in time with it to uh, release it ahead of everyone else. Except the problem is, if you time travel back too far in time, then you have to wait until um, the point of origin when you left so that you don't mess up the space-time continuum. Now, did you know about the space-time continuum <laughs> before seeing Back to the Future, or is that just something that hit you later in life? I mean, you know, that's just a uh, part of life, really. I mean, it's just a term for it, you know what I mean? It just depends how you think. You can always have like-minded people thinking of the same kind of, uh, you know, the way that you look at life, and uh, you can see how other people have put it, and makes sense and you're able to translate it into what you've been seeing it all kind of meets together in the middle you know? sure now you've been trying to spread the cure for a long time do you think that this album is finally gonna get the cure to the right people well uh the concept is uh, over three albums so the first album is designed to um gain attention to everybody there's kind of a, a certain way it's developed in order to uh, get the attention of the people that might not necessarily be attempt paying attention. So if you're not able to receive the cure, you got to think of a way to um, get people to the point that they can receive the cure. Now, at what so first you have to kind of put yourself on the level playing ground with everyone else so they're not necessarily scared of what you have to say that can help. First got to let them know that you're not any different than they are, that you're all, we're all the same. So that's kind of the what the first album's intention is to do. 
to start the relationship. You know what I mean? Now, at what point will you know that the message and the lifestyle and the cure in, in general, at what point will you know that it's been spread successfully? Is there a certain accomplishment or a landmark? I don't know. I mean, that's just kind of all uh, depending on how it all unfolds. You know what I mean? When you're working in times of the future, you know, when you're trying to move forward, there's always two or even maybe more directions that it can go in. Trying to change the past is more difficult. When you try and change the past, it's like a little more touchy and there's a lot more logistics involved of things to go wrong. But the future, you can make your own future, you know? So there's always moving forward, which is a lot easier than moving backwards. Sure. Now, when you've been traveling through time to make this album, have you always been doing it solo? Yes. And what... And, you know, has there ever been the possibility of traveling through time with other people or you just have to invent your own destiny? Man, I'm not even trying to go there. You know what I mean? Like, it's as touchy as it could be already. And uh, that's kind of, uh, I don't even know if it's possible. Depends. We're not there yet, that's for sure. Okay. Now, aside from the new album, many, many, many people primarily know you as a DJ. And I'm curious when you started working with turntables versus playing the keyboards. Did you take piano lessons growing up or you started on uh, turntables first? My grandma had a, a piano or a keyboard in her house too. And uh, she would, you know, like play like church songs and stuff like that. And uh, I would tinker around on it when I was younger. And then she bought me a couple different keyboards. Uh, one of them had like lights on the keys. It would like light up when you're supposed to hit the key. And it had a bunch of these cards that you would put into the keyboard. And it had like classical, all these different classical songs. So I kind of learned to play those a little bit when I was a little kid. But it was like, it was just some other shit that I was, you know, fiddling with. Because I was interested in like a lot of different noisemakers, you know. She used to have, my grandma used to have a lot of harmonicas around the house from her husband, my grandpa. He used to play harmonica. So I fucked around with those when I was a kid too. But, uh, you know, I tried all different kinds of stuff. I messed around with drums. I tried a saxophone for a minute. And then uh, I really like bass guitar. I locked onto that big time, you know what I mean? And then uh, writing, so doing like poetry and uh, maybe around junior high, I started writing some raps. And when I was getting into DJing, I kind of, uh, I had a bass guitar that an ex-girlfriend had given me when I was out of town DJ and she came and like took the guitar back and told my mom, I said she could have it back to some shit. <laughs> so then I just had the turntables left. So I like focused all my energy into the turntables big time. I stopped doing the writing raps cause I kind of got under the industry imprint of what they wanted me to be. And just tried to be in the background more making beats and producing and whatnot, which was good for my skills to practice all that stuff. But I never should have like curved the uh, scratching as much or the rapping. I'm sorry. Anyways, at some point I decided to just start doing that again. And eventually all the solo music I was doing redeveloped back into hip hop. Now with, Start getting your start as a turntablist, did you ever DJ parties or weddings, or were you able to jump through that whole thing and never have to do it? No, I mean, you know, I've done some house parties and shit. I've maybe done, like, I'll do my niece's graduation party or something, you know, but, like, I, uh, you know, I don't really, I never really messed around with that. I was just trying to DJ, like, you know, 
uh, warehouse parties and clubs or like for for a hip hop group, you know, I had some startup groups back when I was younger. Like I was taking it serious, you know. Away from uh, DJing and your solo career and all that, you're known to be big into motorcycles. Uh, at what age did you first get your license to be able to, to ride motorcycles? Um, in Iowa, you can get those when you're uh, 16. You can get your driver's license when you're 16. You can get your motorcycle license when you're 16. I don't know if it's still like that now. But. And then, uh, I don't know, I've been riding bikes since I was pretty young. My dad used to do moto scrambles in England and road racing. So uh, he had like a sponsorship with BSA. Back then, basically, you rode for somebody who showed up and the bike was there. And that was all there was to it. They were just telling me what to do. He was in the military, so BSA is British Small Arms. That was the motorcycle company where their name came from. So he was probably just being told to do it. <laughs> what was your first but, uh, bike a BSA? No, my dad. That's what my dad used to race. Sure. So, what was your first bike? My first bike uh, was a Honda Matic. It's like uh, it, there's no clutch on it. You just shift it. I had that I don't know, for a few months, and then a car hit me. That bike got trashed. And then uh, exactly that. I've had an F4i TBR, TBR 600RR. I got a 76 KZ900 uh, Kawasaki, and it's uh, but it's a thousand fifteen now. It's not a 900 anymore. I got a 2005 DRZ 400 for Motard Suzuki. That's probably my favorite bike. Uh, got a 98 uh, Evo Sportster Harley with a with a flat tracker body on it. Uh, I got a. <laughs> I got an NSR50 from Japan, so it's the big rim style NSR50, not like the YSR American version. I had a CRF50, but I sold that. <laughs> well, is there anything else that you collect along the lines that you do motorcycles, or is that your primary passion in terms of non-music gear? Uh, Transformers, like a lot of Transformers, got a lot of Transformers. Does that have to do with uh, where the DJ Starscream name came from? Yeah, DJ Starscreams. Uh, the first scratch I learned was called the Transformer Scratch. My favorite cartoon growing up was Transformers. And then my uh, favorite character in Transformers was Starscream, who also happened to be the fastest Transformer. So when I learned to do the Transformer Scratch, it was like, you know, God speaking to me. You know I, mean? so, <laughs> I was like, wow, it's after my named after my favorite cartoon. I want to figure out how to do the, be the fastest at that. You know what I mean? And the fastest transformer was Starscream. He was also my favorite character. It's just all in the You know what I mean? Like, life's funny that way, you know? That's a cartoon. You know, when I was a little kid growing up. It's like, that's pretty crazy to me. Because it's like a cartoon, something as insignificant, or that can seem as insignificant as a cartoon. And uh, I'm learning my first scratch, and it's called a transformer scratch. And before I learned how to DJ... My favorite cartoon is Transformers, and my favorite Transformer is Starscream, the fastest Transformer. You're a man of speed. It's like a, it's like a weird coincidence, you know what I mean? you got to pay attention to little things in life. The realization of that moment took me a long, long way. So is there something that you wish more people knew about you, you know, beyond the music? Dang, I don't know. I don't think it's so much about me. It's just uh, more about, you know, people feeling good, you know? 
when you listen to music, you feel better. You know what I mean? <laughs> sure. Um, so I guess uh, in closing, Sid, any last words for the kids? I would say you have to take responsibility for yourself. Commit to what you say. And if you do those first two things, using love as the uh, motivation to do those, then everything should be okay. Thanks for listening to the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz on the Pure Grain Audio Network. More information on the Paltrowcast can be found online at www.puregrainaudio.com. Until next time, have a great Shabbos. (laughs) 